This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Did you know that with Interactive Brokers, you could earn up to 4.83% on your uninvested, instantly available cash balances? In fact, you think maybe you should ask yourself, how much interest is your broker able to pay you? Interactive Brokers' prudent and conservative risk management uniquely positions IBKR to pay you far higher interest. That's just one of the many reasons clients use Interactive Brokers to trade stocks and options and futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and more. Rates, of course, are subject to change. Visit IBKR.com slash interest rates to learn more. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Market action is going from bad to worse. Wondering about inflation. Yes, inflation. Another government shutdown looms. What happens next? And our guest today is Ed Easterling of Crestmont Research. All this and much more on episode number 830 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the Discipline Investor Podcast. This is Andrew Horowitz. I'm your host. Thank you for joining me each and every week. And we have uh, a few things to talk about today, but I really want to focus in on talking with our guests. The bottom line is that we are seeing a good amount of volatility in the markets. You know, what? what is really interesting about what we're seeing right now is that this is on news that has been better, generally speaking, for the economy in the United States. So you got to be wondering, what is going on that is spooking investors? And we have a lot of things that are really funky, right? All, all the information that we've seen over the last week or so out of China has been very concerning. You can't dismiss that at all. The fact is that China is having major problems with their economy. A lot of it is due to the way they manage their economy from the get-go. The fact that they have been so real estate-centric for, for years, and now that 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 base of their economy is crumbling. The government has to step in, but they're really not doing it in a way that is just absolute and instantaneous, as everyone would hope for. The fact is that what's happening there is a crisis of confidence. The fact is that what's happening there is really about many, many years of the government managing the economy in such a way that the individual is no longer really able to make a decision without the government coming in and telling them what to do. And with the banks starting to fail and with many of the real estate firms and the lenders having trouble, and over the years where the leaders of Chinese companies, and we've seen this, remember, would be taken away to various places and disappear for weeks on end, only to be brought back to cough up billions of dollars back to the government for the state-owned private public partnership entities. And you, you have to wonder as an investor, what do I do with that? And as an investor, 
what's happening is many more people are starting to flee China. Hedge fund reports last week have shown that there's a significant amount of withdrawals that are coming from China, out of China, from many of these companies, right? That they loved for years. I mean, the names in China, the technology in China were those most beloved companies for years and years and years. Those are having difficulties because, again, a crisis of confidence has been building there. Now, what would be able to restore that? That's really the question that is going on right now, and whether it's going to be financial stimulus, a letdown of rhetoric, the whole, you know, maybe some break in the tensions with Taiwan. Those are, are important. But when we look at better opportunities abroad and we see the strength of other economies as compared to China, which was supposed to be, you know, the economic growth engine for the world after they reopened due to COVID, that's just not the case. It's failing. That whole thesis that was brought on in the beginning of 2023 has absolutely, it's failed. It's, it's not real. It's not, it never happened. They changed their habits during that lockdown period. Their minds got screwed up in terms of what they were supposed to be doing and what they are going to do in the future. And when I say screwed up, scrambled is probably a better word to describe it. And, and they need some more time to come out of this and to regain the confidence in their government from the likes of the real estate and underlying real estate markets, something we talked about last week on DH Unplugged, the ghost cities that are still there that are being erected, torn down, and erected only for the sake of simply having people work and trying to goose the economy. So China is an issue. And then you have what's going on in Japan Right. You know, whether the yen is overvalued, it's undervalued, the government's going to stay with their very weak policy, even though uh, a dovish stance on economics, when in fact, we saw a print of 6% on the GDP last week on a year over year basis. That's an amazing number. And if you really think about what's going on with regard to the Asian environment and how things are going, whereas we were looking to them for many years to be the engine of growth, which is just not. And we looked for alternatives, particularly from a supply chain situation where during COVID it failed so miserably. And then all of a sudden prices went up. One of the biggest parts of, and I would say the initiation of the inflation situation on top of, of course, the government stimulus. But what happened there was that we had a major flaw in how we got goods. And as China stayed closed, unfortunately, when they reopened, it wasn't just like, okay, business as usual. Nope. What ended up happening was that alternatives were sought and that created more of a problem for China. And we wanted to diversify away from them anyway with you know all the sanctions that were being put on. Don't forget about that. The fact is that we're you know closing off their technology from our use. All these things add up. Now, now that's just one of the problems that we have around the world. You know, we see things breaking, the ruble. We see what's going on in Argentina right now with major increases in interest rates on both sides, both Argentina and, and Russia as well. And then we have concern about the heat of the economy. We thought that it was rolling over a bit when, in fact, now all of a sudden, J.P. Morgan comes out this week and ups their GDP number and Goldman Sachs says, you know, uh, no, not going to have a, 
uh, any kind of bad landing. Recession odds have been dropping dramatically. And we see that 3.5% unemployment rate. All these things are adding up in investors' heads and saying, hey, wait a second. Maybe the Fed is not just done and going to start cutting. Maybe there's something more that's going on here. And that is what is, I think, getting under the skin of many investors right now. And like, how much better can it get? Well, we're going to talk about some of that with our guest today at Easterling um, and talk about, um, I want to ask him about PE ratios and outward multiples and, and what's going to keep the the opportunity for, for these names moving higher. Remember, last, last hurrah, the last big rush was all based on the idea, the hope, the, the fantasy that AI was going to just create this incredible wealth of opportunity for companies in the form of additional revenue, lower cost factors, increasing margins, and eventually down to the bottom line, a better number on the EPS. That is exactly what has gone on right now. And that is being wrung out of the markets pretty well. The S&P 500 under its 50-day moving average, the IWM or the small caps, uh, squarely under their 50-day moving average, moving towards the 200-day moving average. And the same goes true for the large caps. So not as much, but the large caps are definitely suffering as well. So right now we're taking out some of that excess that was really added to the markets over the last few months. So the last thing you have to think about is now we're heading into the end of August and September again, once again, we have the threat of a government shutdown. Can you believe this? We lifted the debt ceiling and you still can't get the government to get figure out how to get things done so that we don't have to go through this ridiculous political infighting stalemate situation with he said, she said, they said, Wade said, it's not going to work. It's my way or the highway. It's going to start all over again in a matter of a couple of weeks. And I think markets are trying to get ahead of that and handicap the odds because they just don't want to put up with this anymore. So I think the kicking and screaming that's going on right now that we're seeing is, is pretty much aligned with, with, with what's going on around the world, wringing out some of the excess that was put in, and then the outlook for what's happening possibly with the most up-to-date, most recent situation, which of course is the, uh, the upcoming potential for another government shutdown. So got that going on. I think that's a, a big issue um, with, with what's happening right now. I want, to, I want to make a quick shout out and talk to all the financial advisors that are listening. I want to talk to you about interactive brokers for a second and ask you and think about, well, maybe is it time? Are you looking to switch, add a custodian? Maybe you're thinking about going independent because interactive brokers provides lowest cost trading and turnkey custody solutions for all size firms. You could trade globally in their accounts from a single unified platform, which has no ticket charges, no custody fees, no minimums, and no tech platform or reporting fees. So basically, you get in there, do your work, nobody's nickel and diming you. Plus, IBKR has no advisory team or prop trading group to compete with you for your clients. You gain IBKR's free CRM, portfolio management and trading platform, plus portfolio analyst which is a tool to consolidate your client's entire portfolio and automate and, and, and have a flexible client billing solution. Switch to the custody solutions that works for you at ibkr.com slash RIA. Interactive Brokers is a member of SIPC. 
And with that, let's get right to our guest today. His name is Ed Easterling. He's been on before many years ago. He's the founder and president of Crestmont Research, an Oregon-based investment research firm, further than anywhere it could be from us right here in Fort Lauderdale, right uh, directionally, uh, diagonally across the country. And uh, he publishes provocative insights and graphical analysis on the financial markets at www.crestmontresearch.com. We'll make sure to have the information on the show notes as well. He's also the author of some very well-respected books on the market and things of that nature. And um, there's uh, all sorts of educational and online learning, on-demand, personal delivery, presentations, uh, on all sorts of areas regarding market services and market education uh, that, that Ed does. So, Ed, welcome to the Discipline Investor Podcast. Well, thanks, Andrew. Great to be with you today. I, did I leave anything out of the intro? No, I think you uh, you covered it pretty well. <laughs> uh, let's talk about what's going on. First of all, what, I got to know because it's just uh, I don't know. You know, I'm 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 a Eastern East Side guy, right? I'm a New York down to Florida guy. What is attractive? I, please don't take offense. What is attractive about living in in Oregon? I tell you what's what's really nice out here. Um, and I got here because I was looking around the country for a place that uh, had fairly temperate weather yeah. where it didn't get too hot or too cold. And I found it on the, on the West coast, Oregon is nice because it's uh it's kind of out in the woods. Uh, and it's, and I live in uh, just on the West side of Corvallis and Corvallis is a college town, Oregon state university. Oh, so it's a chance to uh, live in the woods, uh, manage some timber and cattle at the same time that I uh, publish the research on long-term stock market returns. And, uh, and at the same time, we, Rarely get below freezing and not often get above above uh, uh, 90 degrees. But you also don't have earthquakes, right? Or rarely? Uh, well, let's see. <laughs> we, 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 we're known for having uh, the big one uh, on coming on the horizon at some point. They happen every three or 400 years. Well, so, we haven't uh, had it. You don't get hurricanes. You don't get tornadoes. We don't get hurricanes or tornadoes. We do get we do get earthquakes. But you're well, not, let's see. We don't often get earthquakes. But you're not also, rarely get earthquakes. You're not distracted by... Uh, having to be a super fan for your NFL team either. Right. What, what team is there? Uh, let's see. The Oregon well, treetops? I'm <laughs> the timbers, I guess. Yeah, I guess, right. I, I'm sort of sports challenged. I don't, I don't really follow. I mean, it's, uh, but the, it's, it's, anyway, you like it. It's a beautiful place. Listen, I have, I, love it out here. I will tell you the one thing I know about Oregon is back many years ago, my family, my cousins went out to Oregon for a few years, and they were just involved in planting trees. That was what they wanted to do, uh, and planted thousands of trees. And as a matter of fact, I think one of my cousins wrote a book on trees of Oregon. Like when I say book, I'm, I'm talking more of a feel-good poet, poetry kind of thing. Well, one one aspect I do, I do need to share with you. So I I, I am a I'm a I'm a timber guy out here, mm -hmm. and I live on a uh, on a on a timber farm and uh, grow trees for for lumber. Uh, for habitat and also raise cattle. And we, wow. we plant a lot of trees. We manage a lot of trees. We cut a lot of trees. You drive the, like the big combine or the big tractor things. And, and that, that, that's cool stuff. Big equipment, but it's a, uh, it, it, uh, we often have con logging contractors that have really big equipment. That stuff is fun to watch. Cool. It's amazing the technology these days. Uh, great. So uh, let's talk about the markets. That's what we're here for. Some of the things that are going on right now. And I think the one thing that I really want to dig in with you is because I know you have written about this quite extensively recently. And it's something that I brought up several times is the idea of, Hey, you know, Hey, wake up. Is it possible that, 
we have a, uh, let me put it this correctly, a slowing of de- disinflation, you know, because this new word disinflation has entered the vocabulary of all the central bankers, right? Because you can't say deflation and you, you don't want to say the word inflation, right? But you want to say something that kind of sounds like it's deflation, but it's really not. So you use the word disinflation, right? Right. But all of a sudden, there's some thought that, hmm, maybe inflation is not slowing down as much as we thought it was. Or said a different way, is it possible and probable that over the next number of months that we see a change in the dynamic and that disinflation goes back to reflation? I think uh, I think for a couple of reasons, we're likely to see the appearance of rising inflation, of a return to higher inflation. It's unclear whether the underlying trend is actually going to be uh, up or down. Mm-hmm. So, and t- to me, that's the most intriguing dynamic right now is if there's a, there's about a percent and a half of, I'll call it pseudo inflation. Mm-hmm. That's going to be baked in the numbers between, uh, between, you know, uh, mid year and end of year this year. What, what's pseudo about it? Well, so part of it is what happened, uh, at the end of last year, the second half of last year, we had what I call the stall. Mm-hmm. The stall is where for six months, inflation was virtually, the the actual measured inflation was virtually flat. Okay. Now, because of what had happened 12 months earlier, see, that's the key, is when they report these inflation numbers, they report an inflation number for June or for July or for August, that's in relation to the year before's mm-hmm. June, July, or August. Right. Okay? Yeah. So there are two numbers that are important there, the current number and the year ago number. A year ago, when or over the course of the most of the last year, we've been reporting inflation numbers that have been showing a declining trend in relation to where they were a year before. Mm-hmm. What we've moved on to is that the last half of last year, those six months are virtually flat on the inflation index. So the base for the calculation is flat. So therefore, so what we're going to see, therefore, the it's it, it, it's much easier to climb a a hill. Because you're basically coming off a flat base, and therefore any movement is is much more noticeable. In that, uh, in that, if we have a little bit, of, we we have a little bit, of, if we have a little bit or a lot of inflation for the second half of this year each month, um, that's going to accumulate on top of this base level that was flat last year. And I, I, you know, I wish I could share a, a graph with you at this point, but let me just conceptualize this graph. Essentially, the first half of this year, we had about pretty close to 3% inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, pretty close to 6% inflation. Right. But then, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, um, and the rest of this year, if we didn't have any inflation at all each month, so each month had the same index month to month, there's still enough inflation baked in from the first half of the year that it would make the whole year equal to about 3%. Right, because it would average. But if we have any bit two. of inflation, yeah, right, right. right? But if we have any bit of inflation in any month for the rest of this year, that's going to add on top of that. That's going to make inflation go higher than June's three point three percent report. But I, but I, this is something I've been talking about for months. Everybody, my listeners are probably sick of me talking about this, but I'm going to throw this out at you. Right? Let's yeah. just suppose for the hell of it. You know, magic of all magic, zero inflation now for a long time, two years, two years. The fact yes. is prices are not coming down though. 
And that is problematic in that if we have an economy that's slowing down and wages aren't keeping up, let's say, potentially, and prices are still as high as they are, and interest rates are as high as they are, or maybe they come down a little bit from here, we still have extraordinarily high prices. Housing prices in certain areas have hit record highs recently. We see the home builders doing incredibly well. Walmart came out with earnings last week. Their earnings were great. They upped their overall uh, outlook, and, and that had to do with a lot of the grocery and online sales and things like that. Now, it is not specific to any one area, but we saw the Mannheim Index come down a little bit. But I, I, my problem is I don't understand why everybody and the markets in particular are so hung up on the year ago when markets are supposed to be forward-looking, but we're all concerned about the year ago with right. the knowledge that we're not going to have deflation because God forbid we have deflation, right? That's a horrible thing. I get it. But even so, when we look at what is the makeup of earnings and, and, and what people put in their pockets, it's it's how much the cost factors are, possibly the debt that you have, the interest rates that you have to pay on that debt, and what does it mean to you? The whole thing is absurd to me that we keep on going back to this, this nuance of, oh, it's 3.2 versus 3.1. Tell me I'm wrong. Well, and I think, I think what's going to well, it, and if it stays around that 3% range, that's a little above where the Fed wants it, but it would be at least stable. But that right? means prices are going I think up what, even what more. You just, when, what you just pointed out, though, and I think that's the key, is is housing mm-hmm. and energy. So housing is a third of the index. And prices keep going up. And part of the reason is people aren't selling because they want to give up their low-grade mortgages. So there's not much supply out there, and that's causing prices to go up. So with with that, the other piece of it is that energy is a smaller part of the inflation index, but it's very volatile. We could easily see oil prices go back up to ninety dollars. I mean, we were at seventy bucks mid year. We were at sixty, just clipped sixty three months ago. Well, and and, we all, to- and now we're over eighty. I know. And and so this key, and and that hasn't really moved into the and it, it shows up mostly. It shows up through things. Shows up in food prices, and I, I can tell you about that because it shows up in our cows. In fertilizer costs, in the cost for machinery and operating machinery, et cetera. So that's something to watch for. So I think if we, um, but if we clip along here at about a 3% rate, and you say looking forward. So looking forward, if we're 3% for the next six months, we're going to end the year with the report looking like it's over 4%, almost Mm 4.5% because of this stall thing we talked about before without getting too technical about that again. I, I I, I think the key message though is that, Everybody thinks we've been coming down from started the year at around six and then we went all the way down to three. If we start going back over four and it happens kind of month to month, I, that's going to put a lot of pressure on the Fed. Even though they might be looking into the data and seeing only a two or three percent inflation rate. And the fact that we have relatively close to a historic low on unemployment, the fact is that uh, it was just GDP was just increased by several different uh, groups up to what 2.8 percent, three percent, something like that for the year. That is not the sign of an economy that's slowing dramatically, and you have this big fight with the fiscal stimulus and the monetary that that's causing a lot of problems. You know, listen, you don't see an economy slowing and a stock market all time highs very or close to or stocks at all time highs very often. You don't see where there's an alternative to invest in things like you know a treasury, a safe you know risk free if we assume it's risk-free, but we hope it is, a risk-free rate of return at 5% for a six-month period, an eight-month period, a year period, whatever the, the case may be, and the adjustment of 
uh, valuations that don't really move. And the Fed itself has, as, as I think that you wrote recently um, to me in, in some of our pre-discussion notes, is, you know, first of all, there is, a, and, and to, to a degree, uh, I'm a little sick of talking about the Fed because I'm kind of sick of the Fed, right? You know, I've been around long right. enough where the Fed was not the all-important thing all the time, every minute of every single day of every single da- data point. And every single discussion is about them. But they, they have a credibility problem, I, I think, that is is uh, growing. And at the same time, they, they're like, they want to be a good parent and they don't want to spank the child, but they want to try to tell the child not to do what they're doing. But they, it's almost like this. You've seen these parents, Ed, that say, Johnny, Johnny, you need to, uh, you need to stop uh, on the playground and come inside. Johnny, I'm going to count to three. One, two, Johnny, I'm not kidding. Three, four, five. Come on, Johnny. Six. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Is that right? <laughs> that kind of disciplinary measure that the Fed seems to be providing us. Well, what you just pointed out right there was that parent that loses credibility. Mm-hmm. And what the Fed, when they when they had the transitory, you know, period uh, a, over a year ago, they, they lost a lot of credibility. And so now they're trying to recover it. And I think people are very skeptical about whether the Fed's going to stay strong on, on uh, controlling inflation. They, they haven't been. I mean, yes, they were. No. Um, but they, they seem to be almost reacting, uh, again, with, with a very soft whip. So uh, do, do we think that um, this idea of, you know, now we have the no landing, you know, the soft landing, the hard landing, the no landing. Uh, it does look like to me that there is just no real plan in terms of landing the the ability to uh, to spend our way out of trouble is more uh, I think desirable by the politicians than actually facing any kind of you know it's the ozempic world right you know no mm-hmm. dieting required to stick a needle in your thigh and you'll lose 25 percent of your body fat right that's kind of the fiscal world that we live in it's it's the 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 um, the ozempic economic policy it looks like to me right I I think uh, you know they're I think they're um, trying to thread a thread a needle here and it's they've got a lot of pressure on both sides if they overfight it they cause one problem if they underfight it they cause another so uh, do we think that the 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 but 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 they're also fighting against the fiscal, right? The uh, the the the, bil- the trillion billion, forget what's a billion dollars, a trillion dollars just laid out for construction fighting. <laughs> you know, you never have you ever heard this in all your years, Ed? You know, I'm going to spend a trillion dollars to bring down inflation, right? Uh, right, asinine. Well, and and I think part of it is whether the uh, the fiscal policy may be putting the Fed in a position, and that's what we're starting to hear, is that they may need to raise rates further than they thought to, to try and get the brakes on it. Yeah. The biggest risk is when you have all these dislocations, all these things that are misaligned, the the risk is that, that that's that next grain of sand that hits the pile that causes it to slide. So what do you educate people to do in this kind of environment that has a lot of questions, let's put it that way, but the knowledge that rates are higher, that there is a desire to slow down, um, that the whole world is relatively chaotic. You know, let me just segue for a second and come back. The idea of, oh, the Fed will, will continue doing they do what they do as they always have done until something breaks. 
let me tell you something. The Russian ruble is breaking for one reason or another. The Chinese right. economy is breaking for one reason or another. The Japanese economy is broken, and it's not getting any better. So let's leave it at that, right? We saw the, the um, move by Argentina last week to jack up interest rates. That was a political issue, but jack up interest rates. We saw the, the, the situation in, in was it March with the banks imploding for a little bit there. Then they were able to change their accounting methodology, so everything's fine. Um, you know, with all that, what do you what do you talk to people about and educate them of, of how to uh, work with uh, you know their investments in the outlook? What do you, what do you, well, what do you I, write? I, I think in this environment, the the key thing is to diversify risks, not necessarily just diversify assets. So how does that work? And so what's that? How does that work? Well, it works by kind of looking across the portfolio, for example, and you might say, well, there's a risk of inflation. And inflation is not good for stocks and inflation is not good for bonds. So in a situation like that, you want to make sure you have some other things in the portfolio beyond just stocks and bonds that are uh, that maybe benefit from uh, rising inflation. Because if if inflation, if the Fed doesn't get control of it or some financial crisis happens and they have to let go of the break for a while, then it's going to be bad for stocks and bad for bonds. Right. So, so that's where so it's that's where, a bad environment. Someone's like inflation is like salt. You know, the only thing that uh, doesn't, that, that salt can't corrode is salt. You know, everything else is, you know, you get anything else near salt, it's corroded, right? Right. It's right. kind of like inflation. The only thing that, that doesn't corrode from inflation is nothing, right? There's just really not, nothing. maybe cash. Cash is probably the best thing in theory because you can make an in, increasing interest rate uh, on that, uh, assuming you, your dollars don't go on down in value. That's the other problem, right? The debasement of your dollar. So that's interesting. The diversify the, the diversification process on that that there, it, it's interesting because the old school, you know, investment diversity one hundred and one. You know, inflationary times, you get commodities, you get precious metals, you go to safe havens. You know, one of the things we saw last year, for example, was safe havens were not such a great deal. Right? We saw that bonds imploded terribly last year. Across the mm -hmm. entire spectrum of the yield curve. So that right. wasn't good. Stocks were no good. The only thing that was good last year was, in fact, related to a commodity, which was energy shares and energy. But that's only because it was from such a terrible spot, right? So what are the signs that uh, – and where, where do we how – do how do we diversify and stay safe, but yet at the same time, you know – with the knowledge that the dollar is worth less, your money's less, worth, le worth less only because of the inflation environment, wh what do we do? Well, I think uh, what I can share with you is the philosophy of, of diversifying risks. And then, for example, in the stock market, recognizing that, um, that when you're looking at stock market returns, the uh, modern portfolio theory would tell you to look at the average of the last 100 years worth of returns. Uh -huh. But the reality for investors is that their return starts today in today's mm -hmm. environment, not in the variety of environments that occurred over the last hundred years. And one of those environments that's important is the, the level of inflation because mm -hmm. inflation causes a significant deterioration to price earnings ratios traditionally. I'm going to stop you there, Ed. Yeah, I agree. But you said a magic word there, traditionally. And what we've seen this year is anything but that particular reality playing out. Why is that? 
Um, That is a real good question. And I think part of it is that what we've seen over the last several years is a, uh, is a surge and sustaining of well above average profit margins. But don't, so we have, don't those get eroded by the higher uh, cost of, of goods? Would they, um, the, the, the profits do def- definitely get eroded, but the, but the, but this growth in profit margins mm. has caused a growth rate in earnings that makes it look like earnings can grow at a rate that's far, fa- far faster than the economy. And what do you attribute that to? Uh, that, uh, that's a great question. And that I, um, uh, let me, that's, th- let me throw it out to you. Let me throw it out to you and see what you think. Yeah. It, how about the incredible corporate tax cut that came four years ago or something like that with Trump, where we across the board basically handed corporations a huge amount of favorable accounting methodology and lower taxes that ended up, by the way, they don't just disappear. They have to be paid from somewhere, right? The money comes in. It's like any business. The money comes in and the expenses go out, right? So the money's not coming in, but the expense is still going out. That shows up in the national debt, which is, uh, you know, not only above average at historic highs. So what do you think about the fact that we had this wonderful period of low taxation that has really helped to even a, even a smidge, you know, quarter or a half percent gain on margins is pretty, pretty good. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think uh, those margins are also up on a pre-tax basis, though, so we can't attribute all of it to the tax cut. So technology, maybe? Uh, let's see. It um, uh, uh, could be. Um, I, the, uh, I, I, I hate to bring it up because it's a little geeky, but it could be that the uh, slowing rate of the economy has caused profit margins to go up. Okay. What does that mean? What that means is that... Uh, <laughs> That, that when you invest in a company, what yeah. you're investing in is the company's ability to produce profits okay. in the future. Yeah. And, and your rate of return is based upon how those profits grow. Yeah. Well, it turns out that if, um, and, and, I, and if, you, if, you, if you invest in a low growth company, it'll typically have a lower price earnings ratio than a high growth company. Okay. So a utility versus a biotech. There we go. And so we agree then that growth rate affects the level of PE. Okay. So it may be that because the economy's slowed down and therefore the future growth rate of earnings is going to be lower than it was in the past. Mm -hmm. The way we compensate for that is by increasing profit margins to provide the same return on investment that investors expect to receive from investing in companies. I mean, it could be, but still we have to figure out where the profit margin expansion is. Just you can't just, you know, kind of do a Excel spreadsheet uh, edit on a, on a, on a cell. You know, it, it has to yeah. come from somewhere. And I think maybe some of the layoffs that we saw, those massive layoffs from large, you know, large tech. I think technology has to be some of it. Layoffs, competitive forces, using the pandemic as a way to right-size businesses. Right. And, and, and the one that's clearly interesting to, it's not every company, but one of the things over, over time, companies have had less and less responsibility to their employees. So back in the day, there was defined benefit plans. We've talked about this last week. There was defined benefit plans. And what you would do is you would go to work for somewhere for X amount of dollars, you retire, and then you got paid for the rest of your life. Kind of like a government job, right? Right, right. Okay. 
Then they said, somebody said, oh, I have such a good idea. How about the employees pay for that for now on? And we're going to create this 401k and say how magical it is if the employees put their money in the 401k. We'll put a couple of bucks in there, you know, make everybody happy, happy. We'll call it a match and what a great benefit it is. And then they're responsible for the retirement, takes it off the entirety of the um, liability, long-term liabilities from a company. So that was cool. Then the pandemic happened. And now we're like, you know, work from home, work from home, get your own desk. You know, we'll pay part of your phone, but the overhead, the air conditioning, the, all the things that go on in terms of an office space no longer has to be paid by the company for you. Now, they may uh -huh. compensate that slightly in your salary, but as everybody gets more and more used to and liking working from home, which I can't do. I, by the way, I've worked from home during the entirety of the COVID pandemic one day. Uh -huh. I said I would much rather get sick. <laughs> it worked from my own house. It was terrible. I couldn't take it. You know, because you got you're set up. You're comfortable. You know, you're a creature habit, right? Um, so uh, yeah, th there's obviously that going on. But do you think that in an environment that we are in right now with five percent or so uh, interest rates and seven point five percent? I think we just clipped last week. E 23-year high, I believe 23, I think it is, 25-year high on mortgage rates. Do you think we are in an environment that warrants a 19.2 forward PE for the S&P 500 companies? Not, and especially not with inflation as elevated as it is. I, no, it, it is not justified at all. I think the, matter of fact, if, if anything, I think it's all of these, it's all these dislocations that you just described that uh, create the vulnerability. I think that that's, to me, that's the that's the risk. It could go either direction. That, yeah. This thing could squirt out in any in any direction. Yeah, that's the, now, it, yeah. By the way, there's a lot of momentum for the market to keep going up. So I think one of the challenges this is not this is not a time to get out of the market. Mm -hmm. It's a time to to uh, to uh, diversify and protect yourself in the market. Yeah, rotate, rotate. Uh, make sure to you know take gains for some areas, refill the other areas, lean in on certain positions, not others. Um, one of one of the things also I think is is um, of interest when it comes to you know the PEs and where we are right now is um, there, there's and, and what you said about you know there's a lot of things going why the markets can go higher or theoretically maybe not tomorrow but you know generally speaking you mm -hmm. know something I want to talk to you about is something I've thought about and wrote about and talked about uh, and discussed many times is the mechanics of the market the general mechanics most people, your average investor, they don't sell. They don't short. They buy. That's what they do. When things right. go up, they like it. They buy more. When things go down, they're like, oh, I like it. I buy more. Now, some people get freaked out and they're out, right? I get that. But there's also some other mechanics involved. And the mechanics are things like, for example, the more people that are working, the more the opportunity for the markets to move higher exists. Why is that? What does that have to do with anything? Well, the more that the people that are working, this little thing that we talked about a moment ago, the responsibility for your pension, for your future, rests on you in the 401k. And how does that money get into the 401k? It comes out every single week from your paycheck, automatically goes into an uh, investment of some sort of your picking, but, you know, generally stocks and things like that. Every single week. Weekend, week in and week out. And what does that mean? That means that the more people that are working, the more the mechanics of the market are playing for the burst of in inflows on a regular basis. 
Why is that important? Because you really have to think about if, in fact, we do see an employment situation that worsens, right? The dark clouds grow over this 3.5%. We get 4%, 4.5% in, uh, uh, unemployment rate. You got to wonder if that mechanic is going to work against the markets in terms of the automatic investing that happens. Thoughts? Well, I think uh, I think at the end of the day, it's, uh, um, you know, flows into the market are strong when markets are going up. And that uh, that creates a kind of a reinforcing that uh, we talk about up here in Oregon with lots of fires, forest fires and wildfires. They, they kind of, uh, they create their own wind that causes the fire to accelerate. Right. And I, uh, and that continues until things stop. So I think the, the risk is that uh, you, you could see some head, you could see tailwinds turn to headwinds if some of the things happen that you just described. Yeah, it's pretty interesting what's going on. What else is happening in terms of uh, what is, to explain to me, um, and maybe this is just a, a, a slight difference on what we've talked about, a, about already, but, you know, Crestmont, where, where, where obviously you founded, but you have a um, reconciliation principle. And, well, uh, and that, that, that sort of, in fact, that's, that's a great place to go because what that does is helps uh, demystify a little bit about stock market returns. You know, stock market returns only come from three sources. The first source is dividend yield. And so you can just add these three pieces together and we can get our outlook for returns going forward. And dividend yield right now is one and a half percent, according to S&P, mm -hmm. standard and poor's. One and a half percent of what? For the S&P 500? The, the dividend yield. So the dividend yield, the dividends that the companies are paying. Right, right. If you, if you bought all the companies in the S&P 500 yeah. and you collected their dividends right. for a whole year, yeah. it would give you one and a half percent of your total return. Okay, I gotcha. And then the other... Though the other piece of return comes from capital gains, whether the market goes up or down. And that happens from two factors. One is the growth in earnings, which we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And the second is PE. And so if earnings grow and PE doesn't move, you get your capital gains will be equal to your earnings growth. If your earnings stay flat, but your price earnings ratio gets larger, you'll make that much in return. And if the, both of them are going up, you get these really good return periods like secular bull markets. But if, if earnings are maybe growing a little bit, but not a lot, and if P.E. ratios are going down because the valuation of the markets, you know, uh, um, gets overvalued or, or inflation goes up that causes that value to go down, that can cause you to have losses in the market. Mm -hmm. what, what would you think the earnings growth rate would be over the next 10 years on average? The earnings growth rate of the S&P 500? Uh-huh. I mean, I, I, the expectations are probably like, you know, 8%, right? So that's about uh, three times the rate of the economy. Then uh, that—that's the assumptions that I think are embedded. yes, and so and right, and and that's exactly right. And by the way, one of the things about that assumption that we can that with the reconciliation principle helps us to reconcile is if the growth rate in earnings for the next ten years is up eight percent on average per year, mm -hmm. the growth rate of the economy, according to the Fed and other analysts, is something in the two percent, maybe a little more, maybe a little less range. That means we're projecting that the profit margins are just going to keep even getting bigger and bigger and bigger over the next decade. Is that possible? I think that's unlikely. And from already high levels. I understand. So what the hell is going on as people well, who call well, me maybe, ask me, they maybe ask me the this answer all the time. Is earnings, yeah, sure. Maybe, maybe earnings aren't going to grow that much. Maybe instead it's the price earnings ratio. So do we expect the PE ratio, which is like you say, kind of a lofty forward PE right now of near 20. How much higher is that going to be in 10 years? I mean, you can go on forever. Listen, the fact is that you can just have, why is a company like, uh, 
You know, why did Yellow or Tupperware or Rite Aid or any of these companies that were going yeah. bankrupt, Bed Bath and Beyond, why did they go through the roof? Right? Why? Why when they were when when right now there's some possible explanations, but why was it that um that that they went up 300, 400% when they were declaring bankruptcy. The, the, the obvious thing was to short, but meanwhile, the shorts got squeezed. Five days later, yellow's out of business. It's gone. All, try to get, people, do me a favor. Go and put in the symbol Y-E-L-L. That's yellow's stock symbol. Put it in and go find it. It's not there anymore. They're done. They're gone. They're delisted. So, you know, you, you look at these situations and you wonder you know, have we entered into a more of a casino again, well, you know, which we do every once in a while, uh, that is all about just jacking up? Like one of the things that really I found fascinating over the last right. number of years was the gamma, the gamma squeeze, where probably a lot of people have done this before, but um, this was Archegos and what put them out of business, by the way, uh, where they would go and buy out-of-the-money calls and uh, – then what would happen is that the call sellers had to buy the stocks underneath and they kept on pressing it, pressing it, pressing it, and just created this massive squeeze just because enough money or enough pressure, let's put it that way, squeezing on something makes it pop. That's just natural forces of nature, right? That's how it goes. Right. So um, could we, long-winded answer to your question, could we get a, a higher PE in the future? I guess. Why not? But usually yeah. that relies on a much lower interest rate because borrowing happens, lower cost of capital. And if you look at a capital markets pricing model, you know, when, when just to do a valuation today versus a year ago, we should be seeing valuations of stocks much lower, even if earnings are a bit higher at the 8% level, let's say, because of interest rates. We should see a significant decline in the overall. So I don't know. I'll be honest with you. It, it's just as uh, bewildering to me. Well, and I think that's, um, uh, I think we could certainly expect over a 10 year period uh, for dividend yield to give us a good return for earnings to keep growing. PE ratio. I don't know. It's pretty lofty right now, but maybe there's a little bit of room. Uh, yeah, maybe so I think returns are going to be there, but the question is whether returns are going to be as uh, exciting as uh, the market sentiment may currently have it. So, I mean, listen, you look over the last two years, there's no growth in the market, right? Relatively speaking. I mean, you know, you look at two, right. two full years. Last year, 2022 was awful. 2023 being great. And you yep. got to wonder if that's just, uh, you know, buying the dip and let's get back in. And where does this go from here? And of course you have AI and all the other you know, goodies that go on with that, right? <laughs> but fascinating stuff. So I know you write about this stuff. Where can people find out more information about you? CrestmontResearch.com. Crestmontresearch.com. Uh, Crestmontresearch.com. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they'll find it's an open access website, uh, no banner ads or, or subscription fees. Mm -hmm. uh, it's meant to be a, a, an education research website. One further question for you. Uh, last week on DH Plug, we were talking about this new fascinating, uh, let me think what it was, genetic something that was able to help cows emit less methane. Have you heard about this? Do you have well, a- I it was it was about the lower belching cows, less belching cows. Certain algae uh, is added to food uh, to their their food, and that can help reduce the amount. And matter of fact, uh, you just raised an interesting point, and a lot of people don't realize this. And I'm glad you brought this up. And that is that cows are adding methane to the atmosphere, not from the other end. It's actually from belching. Belching. 
And a lot of people think it's from the other end, but it's belching. And all you got to do is make sure because they have four stomachs, right? I mean, they're, they're digesting all that stuff over and over is, is make sure that they have a, more, a cleaner digestion. And I think an algae, and I haven't heard about another product, but I do know that there's a certain algae that you I can use. I think they food. found, what they did is they genetically found cows that belched less and they now created a uh, sperm insemination product that is generated, I guess, in a test tube or something that you now inseminate a cow with to then their offspring will have fewer belches. I'm going to have to look into that. Yep. Uh, yep. That was on the show notes from two weeks uh, two weeks ago, uh, DH Unplugged. We have the Seminex or something like that is the name of the company or something, like Seminex. Um, <laughs> seriously. But, but, but why don't you just give them Tums? That won't help? Uh, <laughs> Tums. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't think that's going to work, but no. um, that, that would be a good, uh, that'd be a good start. Yep. Yep. All right. At Easterling Crestmont Research, thank you so much for joining us uh, again on the Discipline Investor Podcast. Appreciate it. Andrew, great to be with you. Thanks. All the best. And that's all we got for this week. Thank you again for joining me. We're running into the end of the summer, into Labor Day. I told you at the beginning of this month, the first episode of this month, I said, you know, August and September can get a little squirrely. And that's what we're seeing right now. It's not because everybody's in, in the Hamptons and taken off because we know that you can trade mobily uh, and electronically very easily these days without having to be in an office. So with that, uh, you know, we'll have to see what happens moving forward. But the, with the last Fed minutes that came out last week and some of the commentary from uh, Kashgari and all the other gang about, you know, we're not done yet, we don't think. Markets are rethinking where they are. But anyway, we'll talk more about this next week. Stay tuned. Make sure to listen to DH Unplugged as well. Go over to Apple Podcasts and all the other places and subscribe. Put a review for me. I'd really like that. And go over to thedisciplineinvestor.com and check out all the things that we have for you to become clients with our firm to help you manage your money. Thank you for joining me this week and every week. I'll see you again real soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company. 